1: Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. I'd like to welcome you to my little tribe of wrong thinkers. Yeah, there aren't that many of us, but uh, you know what? It still feels good to question the narrative and to, uh, how how did we say it? Oh, yes, think for yourself. You know, there are a lot of movements out there. There are a lot of uh, different cults and different uh, different, uh, groups that, you know, would like to brainwash you into thinking their way. And, and, you know, I, it's, I guess it's fair to say, well, are you trying to create uh, some kind of a movement here, some kind of a gathering? In a sense, yes. Uh, you know, I guess what I'm trying to do is uh, I'm trying to create a cult in which we brainwash everybody into thinking for themselves. So if that's the kind of thing you're into, welcome home. <laughs> I'm glad you're a part of us. By the way, our show is brought to you in part by Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, also Monticello College and Rio del Sion Home Lots. You'll find uh, contact information for all of these sponsors in the show notes, which you'll find at the BrianHydeshow.com. So where to begin? Well, it's very cold in much of the United States right now, particularly throughout the uh, heartland. A lot of Arctic temperatures, uh, and, and I'm talking, you know, way below zero. Uh, a good friend of mine who is a, an emergency room nurse up in Billings, Montana, posted a screenshot of uh, her, her weather app on her phone. And it was, it's pretty sobering. I mean, you know, you could say, well, it's Montana, Brian. What do you expect? But when you see that the, the high for Friday and Saturday is going to be negative 2 and negative 3. Now, that's Fahrenheit, so, you know, anybody who's on the metric system, don't get alarmed here. But, uh, yeah, minus 2 and minus 3 for Friday and Saturday. The overnight lows... 23 and 24 degrees below 0 each of those nights crazy cold now fortunately it's it's a short term thing but you know it's stuff like this that really makes you start to assess and appreciate just how many great things are going on in your life and 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 I know this is kind of challenging the narrative right now because I think for a lot of people, the narrative is, hey, everything is bad. Everything is bad or everything is, is better because, uh, because of a particular politician. Well, there's a great article from Raymond C. Niles. This was from the American Institute for Economic Research. And I, I just thought this was an appropriate one to share today because it reinforces the power of the free market to solve people's problems. It's titled, If You Are Warm Right Now, Think Capitalism. He says, last night, the temperature fell three degrees an hour. And he says, as I write this, it's negative 10 degrees outside. A -a once-in-a-generation polar vortex has swept into the American Midwest from the Arctic. Now, Raymond Niles says, I'm lucky to be alive. It would take me just a couple of hours to die from hypothermia if I were outside in such weather. But he says, I'm not just alive. I'm comfortable. It's a balmy 73 degrees in my home. I'm relaxing by my gas fireplace that gives off a warm heat as gentle flames dance around and please my eye. I can hear the gentle whir of fans blowing heat around my living room, generated by my furnace. I write this on my comfortable sofa with a computer on my lap, powered by electricity and fed information via the internet, itself powered by electricity and glass fiber conduits that carry information to me from computers and minds from across the earth. Oh, no, he's not done yet. He says, my refrigerator is full. I went to the grocery store last night in my car that's powered by an internal combustion engine and fueled by gasoline, which was refined from petroleum that was pumped out of wells, drilled in miles-long holes, and transported in pipelines and rail cars and refined at complex and gargantuan refineries and made accessible to me via pumps, placed at stations in convenient locations for me to use. He says, I'm eating an orange that was grown in Florida or Brazil, thousands of miles away, and transported to me by railroads and airplanes powered by jet engines. Now, he says, you can continue this description of bounties that, as we go back in time, human beings could only dream about. Even to a person living as recently as 1900, the Internet and jet airplanes would have seemed like science fiction. To a person living in 1800, electricity and railroads and combustion engines would have seemed like science fiction. And to a peasant working in the fields, as more than 90% of all humans did for the past 10,000 years until the 1800s, technology itself is a concept they could not even understand, as they lived lives so hard that we can scarcely imagine it. So he says a couple of statistics hardly do justice to the gulf in quality between life in 1800 and today. So here's a breakdown of then versus now. In 1800, life expectancy was 29 versus 72 years of age. Children dying before age 5 in 1800, 43% of children died before reaching age 5, versus 4% today. In 1800, illiteracy stood at about 88% versus 15% today. And as far as extreme poverty, meaning people living on less than $1.90 per day, in 1800, that would have been 89% of the population versus 10% Today, And here's something else to think about. For those who did survive, most of them were in pain most of the time. Today, most of us live pain-free lives most of the time. 200 years ago, George Washington rarely smiled because his teeth caused him near-constant pain. Well, today one can have pain-free and near-permanent dental implants, while going to the dentist itself, which used to be a terrifying ordeal, is nearly pain-free due to the inventions of Novocaine and high-speed dental drills. So Raymond C. Niles says, who can I thank for all this? I can thank the inventors who invented the internal combustion engine and the electric grid. I can thank the scientists who discovered the principles of optics and physics that made possible the transmission of data on fiber optic lines. I can thank the philosophers who discovered the principles of reason used by the scientists. And I can thank the businessmen who put it all together and delivered it to customers. And I can thank the financiers who picked the winning ideas and the winning businessmen who could turn those ideas into life giving products and services. He says, in a word, I can thank capitalism. Capitalism is the political and economic system that makes all of it possible. Capitalism is the system of liberty, of individual freedom and private property rights that enables and rewards individuals to take their ideas and turn them into the products and services that benefit themselves and others through trade. Now, to the extent it exists, he says capitalism unleashes the human ingenuity that keeps me and millions of my fellows alive and comfortable on this unseasonably cold morning. Unfortunately, though, he says, capitalism only exists imperfectly in the world. But to the extent societies embrace it, they are experiencing economic growth and prosperity that translates on the ground and in people's homes to the comfort, safety, and pleasure that I'm experiencing now. Without these, life, without these life-giving technologies 200 years ago, he says I might have suffered frostbite or died on a day like today. And so he says, thank you, capitalism, and to the scientists, inventors, businessmen, and financiers who flourish in capitalism for keeping me alive and safe this frosty morning. Again, this is Raymond C. Niles from the American Institute for Economic Research. And it may seem like kind of a, I don't know, maybe it seems like a humble brag, well, look at me, I'm sitting pretty and whatnot, but I like it when people occasionally connect the dots for us. And it's only because, like a lot of people, these are things I tend to take for granted. I can pretty much guarantee if I go to the fridge, there may not be something that I'm immediately like, ooh, yeah, I want to eat that, but there is plenty of food to choose from and it just waits, you know, it's not like, boy, we got to use that quick before it spoils. You know, for the most part, uh, we, we have things pretty good. Sometimes this is hard to remember, if only because our, our worldview seems a little bit skewed, you know, in favor of, of uh, what's happening now that, uh, that is keeping us occupied or keeping us kind of spun up. So that's something for you to think about. If you are um, comfortable if you're listening to this on some amazing device that is translating uh, these ideas and, and this light and knowledge to you with almost no effort on your part, yeah, I think you could probably safely say you are a blessed individual and blessed to live at the time that you do. I think, uh, I think the best antidote that I have heard prescribed for the uh, depression the frustration and just the the sense of you know things are getting out of control and, and 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 you know in many ways they are but the best cure that i have seen so far starts with gratitude for what you have and it seems like such a simple thing and yet uh, there it is so often it's just easy to to forget that uh, that's that's an option take some time feel grateful You'll be surprised how your outlook brightens. All right. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, hey, the cancel culture mob is hard at work. I've got a great article from Hannah Cox I'm going to share with you coming up in just a few moments.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show.
1: Our program is brought to you in part by Monticello College. Check out the show notes today. Go to MonticelloCollege.org. You'll find a little contact link there in the sponsor section of my show notes at the thebrianhydeshow.com. Let's talk about cancel culture. I know that uh, the uh, Internet has been abuzz with uh, the cancel culture mob uh, successfully uh, lobbying to get Gina Carano removed from the uh, Lucasfilms uh, production of The Mandalorian which i guess is all the rage right now on the Disney channel and look i grant you there there are people who have always uh, taken uh, dissent and disagreement you know a little too seriously but what an interesting time we live in where you know a, a person can can be drummed out of a job because they do not acquiesce To what politically correct people say they should acquiesce to. This is an article from Hannah Cox. It's from the Foundation for Economic Education. And it's titled The Cancel Culture Mob Got Gina Carano and Now Is Eyeing Fox News. Here's Why It's Wrong. Now, it's been really interesting to me. Before I share her article, it's been fascinating to me to see people who are ostensibly on the side of free markets and on the side of personal freedom, nonetheless, seem to be willing to engage in some uh, some you know moral flexibility when it comes to uh, well, but you know if you say things that are are considered insensitive, you know you should expect that they, this is the consequence. The problem is the goalposts of what is insensitive versus what is acceptable keep moving, and I think that 's the point i mean, this is this is the whole point behind political correctness, as I understand it it 's to keep people off-balance to keep them frightened and unsure. Am I, can we still say that? Is this, is this allowed? To the point that they don't know what they're supposed to think or say, and so they shut up. And, and you know, some people say, well, you know, it's, it's really just a matter of manners. It's just you don't say rude things. Well, when someone is laying there in wait for anything that they can consider rude, or let me put it another way, for anything that they can use, to portray and to highlight their self-appointed victim status. That's a problem. Here's how Hannah Cox describes it. She says, As the nation continues to grapple with the fallout from the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, prominent members of the media are calling for the erasure of right-wing media outlets like Fox News, One America News Network, and Newsmax, which they say contributed to the riots. Max Boot, a columnist for the Washington Post, wrote a piece titled, Sadly, Fox News Can't Be Impeached, in which he called these television networks collaborators in inciting a violent insurrection. Now, Boot went on to ask, where is the accountability for right-wing propagandists like Tucker Carlson, who recklessly splashed around the lighter fluid that ignited on January 6th and suggested pressuring cable giants to suspend their platforms if they do not clean up their acts? Now Hannah Cox says Boots is not alone. Boot is not alone, rather in his thinking, journalists from the New York Times, which frequently cancels its own writers, MSNBC and CNN, all got in on the action. On the program Morning Joe, Anand Girid, let me try this again, Girid Haradas of MSNBC, questioned whether Fox News is a thing that should exist in America, stating, "Quote, it is a brain mashing machine for half this country." and we see that a large number of brains are already being mashed. We see after the terrorist insurrection that 12% of Americans supported the terrorist attack after it happened. I'm not worried about a few thousand people on the Hill. I'm worried about several million people who are now down with terrorism as a means of political conduct. Is that not a violation of the basic ethics and norms of a civil society, if not of the law? End quote. Wow. Nicholas Kristoff Christoph of the Times wrote, We must clear an ecosystem of mass delusion spread by Fox News and many Republicans. In a recent opinion piece, Oliver Darcy from CNN again pointed fingers at AT&T, Verizon, Comcast, Charter, and Dish, which host channels like Fox News, and said it's time TV carriers face questions for lending their platforms to dishonest companies that profit off disinformation and conspiracy theories. Now, not all that long ago, one would have expected to see journalists rushing to defend the values of free speech and a free press, even and especially for those with whom they disagreed on political matters. Instead, she says, we now see journalists essentially clamoring for an end to their own profession, and it must be added, working to silence their competition. Now, she points out that Glenn Greenwald and Matt Tiabi, are Taibbi. Taibbi, are among the few journalists left speaking out against the movement. Matt uh, Taibbi says it's absolutely disgusting that we're seeing clampdowns on alternative media across the board. Yet the biggest commercial outlets assign their top media reporters to snitching on people using naughty words in private forums. And Glenn Greenwald says this is true, and also a reason why journalists are more petrified than ever to stick their head up and question any prevailing orthodoxies. With jobs disappearing rapidly, the last thing a young journalist wants to do is give a hiring editor a reason to throw away their resume. He says, even during Russia during Russiagate, I heard from so many young journalists and even mid-level journalists at every major Russia-obsessed big outlet, thanking me for my skepticism and questioning, but saying they didn't feel safe doing it themselves. Glenn Greenwald says that is so deeply unhealthy. Now, Hannah Cox points out this mentality is part of a larger zeitgeist the country finds itself in, one that's been snowballing for several years. Just this week, The Mandalorian star Gina Carano was fired for a social media post condemning cancel culture and political divisiveness. Toronto pointed out that the Holocaust began with hatred of one's neighbor and made a comparison to the current climate in America. A sizable portion of the population sees no difference in a person who makes a statement like this and a person who seeks to actively harm others. The mob roams, seeking to devour anyone outside its groupthink parameters. The offenses are subjective, creating an environment of distrust among Americans, fear of one's community and a desire for revenge among many. Anna Cox writes, fake news, cancel culture, and deplatforming have all taken up considerable space in the national conversation, and yet it seems we're no closer to workable solutions to the problems underlying these events. And she admits, to be sure, some of these problems do not present easy answers. Fake news is a concern. Despite being at least a decade into the age of information, people seem to be becoming less educated and informed. Conspiracy theories are seemingly everywhere. Disingenuous grifters rile gullible audiences up for likes and notoriety. And the majority of Americans spend their days in an echo chamber with few voices to correct disinformation. She says the market for moderate voices has all but evaporated and this contributes to both sides' progression to the fringe. The responses to these phenomena are complicated. Cancel culture and deplatforming are free market responses, after all. Businesses have every right to part ways with those who might harm their bottom line or who violate their core beliefs, just as consumers have the right to vote with their dollar and pressure companies to change their ways if they want their business. But she says there's no question that these efforts have been disproportionately aimed at conservatives and libertarians. And many people have been swept up in the current unjustly, losing their jobs or platforms for minor or ambiguous offenses. Some of the examples she gives here, a top Boeing executive lost his job for an article he wrote in 1987, expressing the opinion that women should not be fighter pilots. A teacher was fired for inadvertently using the wrong pronoun for a transgender student. A man was fired for participating in a Chick-fil-A protest. She says, In recent years, the criminal justice reform movement has found great success in pushing for society to see people as more than the worst thing they've ever done and arguing for pathways to redemption. But at the same time, many of the supporters of that work are seeking to punish or remove from society those who've done things they merely dislike or disagree with. And she asks, isn't that ironic? We'll come back to this article in just a few moments. Again, there's a link to it in the show notes at thebryanhideshow.com. Stay with us. We'll be back right after this.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, thanks for joining us here on
1: the show. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please consider doing so. It's not tricky. doesn't require a DNA sample or anything or any kind of parental uh, permission note. You just sign up for it, and uh, you'll get a notification every time a new episode drops. And usually, okay, there are sometimes exceptions, but typically I put out about uh, 10 hours of fresh content every every single week, and you can either catch the live broadcast on the various uh, streaming networks or radio stations that, that carry this, or you can catch it in podcast form, which it turns out is a pretty convenient way to, uh, to catch the show. I break it down into nice, easily digestible segments, something you could listen to on your commute without too much problem. Just go to the dot show.com and uh, you can find everything you need right there. Back to this article that I'm sharing from Hannah Cox from the Foundation for Economic Education. The cancel culture mob has its eyes on Fox News. And it's she points out the irony of how people who supported, you know, this, this work to reform criminal justice to make sure that, hey, we're not just looking at people as the worst thing that they ever did. In other words, they still argued that there were pathways to redemption, but many of the people who would support that work are actively seeking to punish or remove from society those who've done things that they just don't like or disagree with, not that have actually gone out and harmed people. And she asks, isn't that ironic? But while people quibble over these actions and their legal and moral standing, she says what seems to be escaping most is that these measures are not working. In fact, they're backfiring. In 2020, engagements with websites that provide unreliable news more than doubled. A new survey found that conspiracy theories are thriving And worst of all, extremist groups continue to grow and organize, presenting a mounting threat noted by the FBI and other government agencies. And she has a very relevant quote here from French philosopher Michel de de Montaigne, who once said, To forbid us anything is to make us have a mind for it. Kind of a variation on, don't think of an elephant. What are you thinking about? Uh, Not an elephant, for sure. (laughs) Hannah Cox says, I think we've all witnessed this in effect. Warning labels placed on CDs in the 1990s became a badge of honor as the indication of edgy content drove the sales of albums. After being effectively canceled by HBO last year, Gone with the Wind soared to the top of the charts on Amazon as people rushed to see what all the fuss was about. And while OANN and Newsmax were condemned by the left for spreading misinformation around the election, their viewership rates exploded. Just because a solution is a free market response does not make it the right response. And she says, in this instance, cancel culture is compounding many of the root problems it seeks to eliminate. Those falling for conspiracy theories and fake news are often people on the margins of our society. They feel the system is rigged against them. They can't pinpoint why. Those joining extremist groups or posting incendiary content are often people who are isolated and hurting. They feel powerless. They want to be heard. They want to find belonging. Now, these facts don't excuse their behavior, but they do explain it. And if we want to stop these actions, we have to begin there. Hannah Cox says, as some in society seek to silence those with whom they disagree, they deepen their isolation and harm their economic opportunities. And this frequently only further convinces them of their belief that there is a plot against them. If these aforementioned journalists are truly worried about the propensity for violence among these fringe populations, continuing to cancel and erase people is the precise recipe for it. Deplatforming these networks will not eliminate conspiracy theories or fake news. It will light a fire under them. And she has a great note here from George R. R. Martin, the author and uh, the creator of that epic fantasy series "Game of Thrones," about uh, the problem with simply silencing people. Maybe you've seen this. I've seen it quite a bit as a meme on the Internet. Martin wrote, when you tear out a man's tongue, you are not proving him a liar. You're only telling the world that you fear what he might say. She says, instead, we must fight disinformation with correct information. And that means elevating credible news sources. And she says, by elevating, I also mean subscribing. Having one-on-one conversations with empathy and offering better explanations and solutions for the problems those caught up in these movements focus on. Now, these aren't big government solutions. She says they aren't even collective solutions for society. They're the granular, everyday work of individuals needed to fix our representative democracy. And she says in a free and open society, people are going to say and believe some crazy things. That shouldn't scare us. Rather, we should want these assertions to be brought to the public square where they can be confronted and their absurdity put on display for all to see. Oscar Wilde once said in his usual colorful way, I may not agree with you, but I will defend to the death your right to make an ass of yourself. She says, I happen to agree that some of these outfits, uh, networks rather, have broadcast crazy things in recent months as outlets like CNN and MSNBC. Need I remind you of their Russiagate conspiracy? But she says, now let's work to prove that to their viewers. Great article. Well worth your time. You'll find it in the show notes at thebrienhideshow.com. Now, this, this brings me to another uh, very fascinating article that landed in my inbox overnight The Real World and the Narrative World. This is from Caitlin Johnstone. And th- I'm not going to share the whole thing here, but I want to hit a couple of highlights because I think she is just right on the money here. She says, We inhabit two very different worlds simultaneously the real world, and the narrative world. So the real world, she says, is the physical world of matter, of atoms and molecules and stars and planets and animals wandering around trying to bite and copulate with each other. Science doesn't yet understand much of this world, but it can reasonably be said to have some degree of existence to it. The narrative world is made of stories, of mental chatter about what's going on. It's only related to the real world in the loosest terms and commonly has no relation to the real world whatsoever. And here's the example she gives. Caitlin Johnstone says, In the narrative world, you exist as a certain you exist as a per- person rather, with a certain name and a certain life story with a mountain of adjectives attached to you, some believed consciously and some believed subconsciously. You are this, you are that. You are inadequate, you are inferior, you are clever, you are fat. You are unlovable. Whatever. Words, 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 words. In the real world, what you think of as you exists as an organism. Breathing and digesting and pulsing and moving in the appearance of time. No thoughts or words need to occur for this organism to exist. It just is whatever it is. In the narrative world, your surroundings are experienced as friends and foes, good and bad, right and wrong, threatening and and non-threatening. Churning, babbling stories about what's happening pervade the experience of the narrative world. Those people over there are bad people and should be punished. Those people over there are the good people, and they should be rewarded. That man is blah, blah, blah. That woman is this and that. In the real world, your surroundings are experienced as raw sensory data. Sensory impressions arising in each point in space-time. Breath going in, breath going out. The feeling of feet on the ground, sound of a bird call, sight of a passing car. It's all happening just as it is, says whatever it is, simple, present. Now, she says, in the narrative world, the United States changed dramatically on the 20th of January. If you live in one narrative echo chamber, it changed dramatically for the better. If you live in the other narrative echo chamber, it changed dramatically for the worse. But throughout the narrative world, most agree that the 20th of January 2021 marked a very real and significant turn of events. Listen to this, though. She says in the real world, things are moving in pretty much the same ways they were on January 19th. The money is moving in more or less the same directions at more or less the same rates. The weapons and troops are moving to more or less the same places in basically the same ways as before. The resources are behaving in essentially the same way. The people are moving in pretty much the same way. The actual physical dynamics have remained predominantly unchanged. Look, her point here is the real world and the narrative world could not be more different. Skilled manipulators exploit these differences for their benefit, like foreign exchange traders exploit the differences in world currency values. A religious manipulator could get you to hand over your real currency in exchange for narrative currency about eternal salvation or spiritual purification. A sexual predator can manipulate you into trading the real currency of sex for the narrative currency of, I think I'm in love with you. A politician can manipulate you into trading the currency, the real currency of votes, for the narrative currency of whatever they say on the campaign trail. She says it's very hard to control people in the real world by just using the means that are available in the real world. If you're bigger and stronger than someone, you can get them to hand over their sandwich by hitting them, or if you have a big stick or something. If you want to exert a large amount of control over a large number of people, though, you generally have to seize that control through the narrative world. And she says it's easier to control people through the narrative world than, than the real world because the narrative world and its relationship with the real world is too complicated for most people to understand. Whereas the real world is quite simple and straightforward. So for this reason, Caitlin Johnstone says a tremendous amount of energy goes into controlling the dominant narratives, the dominant stories that people tell about what's going on in the
0: world. We'll come back to this in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Show. All right, welcome back to the show.
1: Just finishing up a couple of thoughts here on Caitlin Johnstone's article about the real world and the narrative world. You'll often hear me talk about, you know, this program and others like it exists to question the narrative. And I think she spelled out pretty well why that narrative needs to be questioned. If you want to control people, especially masses of people, what you have to do is control the dominant narratives that they believe. The dominant stories that people tell about what's going on in the world. Caitlin Johnstone says you convince people to accept the narrative that a government leader is an evil dictator in need of regime change, and you can trade that narrative for real-world control over a crucial geostrategic region. Convince people to accept that, hey, the status quo is working fine, and any attempts to change it are dangerous insanity. And you ensure that people will never rise up and take away your real-world control. Convince people that anyone questioning your narratives is a conspiracy theorist or a Russian propagandist and you ensure your continued hegemonic control over the narrative world. She says the most powerful manipulators are the ones who have succeeded in exerting control over both the real world and the narrative world. And they pursue both agendas with equal emphasis. Populations in the real world who insist upon their own national, resource, financial, economic, or military sovereignty are subject to real-world attacks by bombs, starvation sanctions, and special ops entities in the narrative world which threaten imperial the imperial narrative uh, in which threaten imperial narrative domination are attacked smeared marginalized and censored she says that's all we're seeing with the increasingly shrill mainstream panic about disinformation conspiracy theories foreign propaganda and domestic extremism She says our rulers and their media lackeys are not compassionately protecting us from deception. They are ensuring that they remain the only ones authorized to administer deception. By golly, the only ones allowed to deceive us should be our government, our news media, our teachers, and our priests. There's more to the article. I'll let you uh, sort it out for yourself and and check it out in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. But that was a really nice and eye-opening piece. And and I'm just going to throw this out there. Um, I don't see eye to eye with Caitlin Johnstone on everything that she writes. I do appreciate her insights, though. And I only point this out not because I feel like I have to distance myself from her, but just to, to point out you can find truth from pretty much any source. You don't have to line up perfectly or politically with someone to learn something useful. And I'm really praying that there are people keeping that in mind as, as they listen to me and listen to this show. And, and, you know, whatever you disagree with, that's fine. Discard it. You don't need to take it. You don't need to to believe it. I'm not going to insist on that. My hope is only that you and I are both better for having examined it and then do with it as, as you please. All right, one more article I wanted to get to. This is from Anders Koskinen. And this is one that has been on my mind a lot lately because in, in many ways it appears the COVID crisis is easing somewhat. I don't follow the numbers religiously, frankly. I, I don't watch a whole lot of news because it's so much fear porn that it just gets old. But it appears that the numbers are coming down, hospitalizations are down. Why does it seem then that so many politi- politicians are loath to let normalcy return? Why won't they let COVID end? Here's what Anders Koskinen says. He says, two weeks to slow the spread proved to be a lie as state government stay-at-home orders stretched on and on, being taken away and reintroduced at the whims of governors rather than by acts of the various legislatures. Even when we were permitted out of our homes, they imposed rules on who we could visit, how long we could visit, and what we could do while we visited. They told us that that once a vaccine was ready, life would get back to normal. Then it moved to, once the vaccine is distributed, normal life will will resume. Now, not only one, but multiple vaccines have arrived and are being distributed across the United States and the rest of the world. Yet the goalposts continue to move as those who enjoy the largesse of government and the control it gives them over the populace scramble to come up with new conditions they claim must be met, before the fight against COVID-19 is over and we can be allowed to live lives free of microbial terror. Six authors, all of whom served on the COVID-19 advisory board for the Biden presidential transition, argue in a Washington Post opinion piece that there are three other milestones that must be reached before the pandemic is solved. First, we need substantially more genomic surveillance. Since there may be many variants of COVID within the United States, the authors argue, the country must sequence the genome of about 3-5% to of cases, currently as many as 50,000 viruses a week. Now, this may not sound like it would be particularly helpful in directly combating the pandemic, but it leads into the second item on the author's wish list, that being more vaccines. We must develop multivalent vaccines, that is, vaccines that can immunize against more than one strain of the same disease. The annual flu vaccine is multivalent against three or four different influenza viruses. We will need the same for COVID-19, which the administration is also working on. Wait, so vaccines alone won't solve the pandemic, but what will solve the pandemic is more vaccines? Anders Koskinen says, look, I'm all in favor of vaccines for COVID and any other disease, but this seems like a very flawed train of thought. Americans have already been more than patient. Some would argue far too patient in waiting for Operation Warp Speed to come to a successful conclusion. Now that it has, demanding that Americans continue to live in a state of fear, a constant state of fear, dependent on government until several more vaccines are developed and administered, is intolerable. The authors note that our yearly flu shots or multivalent vaccines will all well and good, but people still get the flu because it's impossible to vaccinate for every strain of the flu virus. He says one can scarcely imagine the hubris behind a demand that we wait until that we wait to resume our normal lives until a vaccine is available to combat every single strain of covid. Anders Koskinen says that won't happen. Such a demand is merely a tool to inculcate fear and consolidate control over ever increasing impor- proportions of the lives and livelihoods of ordinary Americans. And he says, it's also ironic that Biden's COVID-19 advisors demand greater focus on developing scalable treatments to prevent severe COVID-19, to shorten the duration of the disease and reduce deaths. Now, he reminds us the media spent a great deal of time and effort attempting to debunk President Donald Trump's claims that hydroxychloroquine may be helpful in combating the disease. The science on the matter continues to remain unsettled, however, as a positive report on the treatment out from Hackensack Meridian Health shows. And all of this is also overshadowed by the fact that there doesn't seem to be any correlation between the actions taken by government and the actual spread of COVID-19. He says at the time of writing, Mayo Clinic data showed that South Dakota, much maligned for mostly staying open and free during the pandemic, had 16 new cases daily per 100,000 residents. Neighboring Minnesota, where Governor Tim Walz saw articles of impeachment introduced against him thanks to his endless executive orders, also has 16 new cases daily per 100,000 residents. Government has not solved COVID in Minnesota, and the state also lags behind South Dakota in administering COVID-19 vaccines. So in summary, Anders Koskinen says, The pandemic has been the single most powerful tool big government supporters have ever had to push their agenda and reshape America. The ability to shut down large sectors of the economy, ruled by diktat rather than legislation, and ignore the will of the people while hiding behind a lie of working for the greater good are powerful tools but he says those in charge are loath to give them up while their transformation remains merely in progress rather than complete ooh i just felt a little chill go up my spine as i read that oh man well that does seem to be the case and I'll have a link to this article if you want to share this with, uh, with friends or family or share it on social media. Again, you'll find this at thebryanhideshow.com. So this brings us now full circle. So what can you and I do? What are we expected to do? How are we going to solve all of this? And I'm just going to give you, you know, off, off the cuff here, here's my best advice for keeping some peace and sanity. And yet, if you're trying to make a difference, if you're really trying to, to be part of the solution and not part of the problem, here's what you can do. First and foremost, get yourself in order. Now, this could be your household. This could be your personal, you know, preparations for hard times, you know, this, whatever it may be. But, but above all, get your heart and your mind in order. This is not asking too much but it is going to require a willingness to experience some discomfort because people who are getting them, their, their mind in order and people who are getting their lives in order are by necessity going to have to walk out of step or at least lockstep with the crowd. I'm trying to provide information that I hope will prove useful or at least you know, somewhat uh, helpful in helping you find that broader worldview. Whatever your worldview happens to be, at least, you know, if you're questioning the narratives around us, that's a good place to start. But where it really begins is knowing who you are, knowing what you stand for. Once you got that locked down, you can start helping people
0: all around you. That's just how it works. This is The Brian Hyde Show.